You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 296. Accept no one's definition of your life. Define it yourself. Harvey Firestein. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Enjoy today's episode with guest host, Dave Bullis. This concluding academic year, July 1st is the new academic year, of course, uh, is, is the, this is the concluding 38th year. Um, so I've, I've seen a lot. Um, but I'm recalling years and years ago, and one of the things I've seen is, uh, oh, about 25 years ago, actually, uh, probably a little longer than that, um, the arts at UCLA all across the campus were reconfigured. And um, the film school, which was part of the theater arts department, uh, was turned into a um, a long uh, was turned into a separate two separate departments, theater, uh, uh, film, TV, digital media on one hand. That's my department, and our sister department, the theater department. And we are together in the uh, school of theater, film, and television. And years ago, when we were still the theater department, there was a retreat uh, up to Lake Arrowhead. There's a very beautiful upscale, uh, gorgeous uh, uh, conference center up in the mountains just about an hour hour and a half from the campus and um, the whole subject that was discussed up there for the weekend was um, uh, the spelling of the word theater there were some people who wanted to to change it from the ER to the RE uh, it's terribly unimportant but I, I am on the uh, uh, side of the ER people well there was this after uh, two days of robust and vigorous and eager um, discussion it was decided uh, without any equivocation uh, uh, without any hesitancy to discuss this further at another retreat you know I mean (laughs) it's like it's been said of the universities that universities just like a corporation except that there's no bottom line and there's no calendar now both of those things are completely untrue today you know their universities especially here in California but all across the country are uh, very much in touch with the notion of the bottom line as re, re, uh, you know support for public education retreats and not only 
at, at the university level, but much more grievously, I think, at the K through through 12 level. And calendar is very much a, uh, attached to budget issues and so on. So fascinating, <laughs> fascinating place to spend a life. Uh, that that said, there's no escaping the you know these bureaucratic um, issues. They're not you may uh, unique to to public universities or private inst- uh, universities, but all institutions, corporations, nonprofits, governmental agencies. You know, nothing ever runs real smoothly, and people should stop expecting it to. You know, and uh, and kind of make do because what else can you do? So uh, in any event, there uh, I, I am very sympathetic with, with what you're saying. <laughs> the organizing principle of my life um, has always been no meetings. I don't do lunch a, a, as much as I can avoid it, for example. Now, yesterday I was at an awards lunch, and I had to be there. I am also the associate dean now of the School of Theatre, Film, and Television, and I uh, I have to be there for the uh, awards uh, the ceremony. You know, they give out scholarships and stuff like that and celebrate the the students. But I'm reminded of a, of a line and one of my favorite lines in all of movies, um, in Oliver Stone's um, Wall Street, there's a line, there's a moment where Gecko, you know, Michael Douglas, I'm sure you've seen, the, I expect you've seen the, the movie. Um, he's on the, he's fielding like 11 phone calls at the same time. And at one point, uh, he says, lunch, you know, clearly somebody's invited him to lunch. And he says, lunch. And he scoffs, he says, lunch is for wimps. And he hangs up. You know, uh, and I say lunch is for wimps. I, I believe, uh, you know, my first obligation to the university as a professor at a, a research institution like the University of California, uh, the first, the second obligation is teaching. The first obligation is what they call in the um, traditional disciplines uh, research. And in the arts, they call it creative activity. But that's the first obligation that I have. And I can't do that. And that all the faculty have. Uh, but we can't do that if we don't have the time to to do that. So you, one does need to be a warrior for one's writing time, if you follow what I'm saying. And um, I'm just responding to you talking about all these meetings. Uh, our previous chair, uh, she had a, a sign. I loved her because because she had a sign on her desk on a little table at her in, in her um, uh, uh, office uh, that said, this meeting is costing, and then there was a blank, you know, uh, fill, fill in the number, you know, next to a dollar sign. So I'm very sympathetic with what you're talking about. You know, there was a, a book I was just reading, Richard. It was called uh, The Power of No. And uh, basically, it's that one word you could use to just sort of – the crux of the book is if you say the word yes, uh, you inherit all that person's problem. So like if I yes. say to you, Richard, would you like to go to lunch? And you say yes, well mm-hmm. – <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's funny because the uh, um, there's a self-help guru who died, I think, last year, a very well-known Stephen Covey, um, who wrote a book uh, that is translated into like 167 languages, you know, several of which are not even identifiable. Uh, I mean, he sold millions and millions of copies of this book, and it's called something like The Seven uh, Habits of Highly Effective People or something like that. And um, in that book, he says, uh, uh, at one point he has a, a he has something he calls six words for serenity. Uh, and here they are, own less, do less, say no. And that's what you're talking about. I have had to learn how to say no. Um, 
you know, it, it, it's a, uh, uh, a necessary condition when I'm asked to do things that I just can't do rather than sort of play along and go along and so on. You know, uh, there's all kinds of ways to say it. A student, I just got a request, for example, for the summer, a student. And, you know, there I, I love the, the greatest thing about UCLA and the greatest thing about teaching is the students. Uh, and I love our I, I love our students, but there is among young people and um, and maybe college students in particular, maybe especially prestige students in glamour programs like UCLA. I mean, it is the you know those major film schools like my own alma mater, USC, like NYU, like like uh, certainly like UCLA. We are the glamour corner of higher learning. So the people who do get in, it's very competitive. They may, you know, they, they're uh, very gifted and they're used to get, getting their own way. And I think maybe they're uniquely entitled. Um, you know, they have a, a sense of unique entitlement. So somebody just announced to me, and this is somebody I really rather fond of and a very fine writer, a student in a program, that he's decided to, to take an independent study with me this summer. I don't get paid for that, by the way. Um, he will, uh, and of course, I have to consent to it. Um, he can't just announce it, although he thought that he could, that he's just entitled to it. And he's going to, uh, if he has his way, uh, you know, meet with me this summer and discuss uh, his outline for a screenplay after I look it over. And then we'll meet several times. I'll review the pages and give him notes and, and so on. Now, I do that, you know, for eight writers every quarter. We're on the quarter system at UCLA routinely. Um, but uh, I'm not going to do that this summer, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm working on my own stuff. I have all kinds of things planned. But rather than just say no, what I told him was that I wished I could do that, which is only partly true. Um, and uh, however, that I would not be able to give him and his screenplay the uh, time and the attention and the consideration uh, that they both merit. So that's a polite way to say no. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But you do need to learn how to say no. And I've also said in Hollywood, dealing in the movie business, you're uh, a, a hard no. No, this is not for us. As painful as that is, it's not as painful as what one usually hears when one submits a project either to potential representatives or to a production company. What one usually hears is this. Know what I mean? <laughs> the silence is deafening. <laughs> yeah, very shrill, very shrill silence. <laughs> so I'm sympathetic with what you're you're talking about. You do need to. I mean, I I consider it actually part of my uh, my my pedagogy, if I could call it that. My teaching uh, philosophy is to teach students. Um, we are a, a you know professional program, a graduate program. We we offer the master of fine arts. Uh, I trying to teach them by example how they need to be warriors for their own writing time. I, I once had a definition. I used to clown around about a definition of a writer. A writer is somebody who's always available to pick up uh, relatives at the airport. Um, and I, I've... <laughs> 
preach to writers that uh, if they, when they complain, oh, you know, they, I can't get anything done. I mean, the family wants me to, you know, they think I'm available to pick up people. I said, well, you are available. I mean, you did you pick them up or didn't you? So why, you know, if you don't get it, how are they going to get it? You know, you it's one of my principles, which is if you, you want to be treated as a professional uh, writer, you have to treat yourself as a professional. And the fact is, people who are going to pick up relatives at the airport, what they don't realize is they're actually glad to do that because it allows them to avoid doing what every writer wants to avoid doing, and that is writing. And not only that, they get to do to feel virtuous about it and to get to gripe and catch and carp and complain about everybody impinging on their time when, in fact, they're terrified to sit alone in front of that word processor, you know, and the relatives coming in from out of town have um, given them the excuse not to do that if you follow me. Yeah, I absolutely follow you because uh, there's a book that I read, um, it, uh, the, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. He's a genius, Pressfield. Uh, he's just – I love that book. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to, to speak with him briefly, and I told him, you know, reading that book was an epiphany for me. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I just love the book. In fact, I was just quoting him. Somebody, I I do a lot of uh, consulting off campus. I give uh, um, notes to writers uh, who have deals at studios. You know, it's becoming more and more routine in Hollywood now. Even when you have a deal, um, you know, typical uh, writing assignment is is what they call, and it's whatever is negotiable. You know, with, as long as the guild minimums are being uh, observed. Um, <clears throat> the the uh, typical assignment is what they call a draft and a set. A draft is a draft of a screenplay, and a set usually consists of what somebody will call a rewrite, and somebody else, uh, and then it'll be followed by what somebody calls a polish. But of course, the guy uh, doing the polish and the guy doing the rewrite have different views of you know what what it should be what it should be called. But um, often between uh, such such stages. Uh, smart writers will go to somebody like me, a script doctor, a script consultant, and say, "Listen, they owe me. You know, I owe I, uh, I owe them this draft beforehand, and then ask me. You know, I want you to ask me the hard questions before the studio asks them, and and um, and so on." Um, so uh, I was talking to, but I also work with writers who, uh, you know, who are independent and who can afford my very, very high fees to give those kinds of notes. You know, it's easier for a writer who's getting a quarter of a million dollars, half a million dollar fee from Paramount Pictures to do that than, than somebody out of, out of their own pocket. Um, but I do work with writers off campus, as I say, who can, can I, if I'm attracted to the script, I think it's a, a, something that I want to, uh, you know, I feel, feel merits encouragement. Um, and then, of course, it, 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 it costs a lot of money. So I was working with somebody. I'm working with, with uh, a particular writer who's in the Midwest, and she. I just sent her back a, um, a, a second uh, raft of notes. Oh, it's about a 15-page document going through her, her script and talking about it in general, but also going through the pages, note, you know, page for page, and, and indicating where there are certain issues that are, arise, some of them as trivial as typos, and some of them, uh, you know, fundamental issues about character and story structure and whatever. 
and she she uh, complained to me that uh, uh, she was really disappointed that there's more work to do, that she thought she had the whole thing set up, uh, and that she's kind of sorry that things aren't proceeding, uh, you know, according to schedule, you know, um, in the uh, way that she predicted. And I immediately uh, thought of Pressfield, who I know what he would say, Stephen would say, that her only amateurs and dilettantes think that it, it, it goes, you know, in a steady, predictable, reliable way that it's not herky-jerky and frustrating every inch of the way, you know. Uh, Pressfield would say, stop trying to feel good about it, you know. Feel good about having done it, but don't feel good about doing it. Nobody does. No writer uh, does it. One of my first principles is, is all writers hate to write. We love having written, but actually sitting down and, and addressing the uh, – uh, the pages, that's what um, Pressfield calls resistance. There's always resistance uh, sitting there. And uh, I have a lot of experience as a writer over my, my years. I've been writing professionally for um, more than 40 years. But my own uh, experience is leveraged by the uh, experience I've had with other writers working very, very closely, very intimately with writers um, on campus and off campus. And so my, uh, you know, I, I, I have the experience also of, of all of those writers. And that's the way it is for everybody, for everybody, including the highest handed, you know, highest minded, uh, most successful, richest practitioners. It's always that way. And people have to, uh, um, you know, stop trying to feel good about it. You know, it's like Stephen said one time, he said, uh, you know, if you can beat resistance inch by inch and you can actually get something made and you can actually, you know, you sit there and there's a polished manuscript and he says, congratulations, now move on to the next one. <laughs> exactly. I, I quote a, uh, a student of mine. Uh, he wrote two scripts in class that became gigantic. Gigantically successful films. They even became franchises. One is Highlander. Um, maybe they re they called it The Highlander. And um, the other one is Backdraft. Um, I mean, Backdraft became a uh, an amusement park ride. Uh, you know, I mean, it's gigantic success. And so here was this 26-year-old writer, multimillionaire already. I was reading an interview with him in the press. This is some years ago. And he was, again, just like writers, complaining, and, and you'd think he'd be jumping for joy and, and, you know, whistling a happy tune. No, he was talking about how they had betrayed him at Fox, how they had dissed him at NBC and burned him at Warner Brothers and lied to him at Paramount and on and on and on, you know, all of these dramas and, and uh, um, uh, uh, you know, acts of uh, these crimes that had been visited upon him, this poor poor guy, this poor multimillionaire, 26-year-old screenwriter. And then he pauses in the interview, and I swear, if you held the interview, this was a press, uh, you know, a, pr a print piece. Uh, if you held the, uh, the news page close to your face, you could have felt the waft of his sigh, if you know what I'm saying. You could have <laughs> felt the breeze on his cheek. It was that palpable in the context. And what he was saying was quoting me. He was saying, ah, but I can just hear, after he's griping and, and complaining, he says, ah, but I can just hear my professor, Richard Walt of UCLA, saying, but Greg, don't you know it's a privilege in Hollywood even merely to be mistreated this way? Again, what Hollywood will do to you, the worst thing Hollywood will do to you is not mistreat you, but uh, um, ignore you. Uh, I had an experience. I met with um, 
uh, rest his soul, uh, Julius Epstein. He's he and his brother uh, and another writer wrote uh, Casablanca, and uh, among many other things uh, that, uh, that Julius was involved in, he lived. Uh, he was working well into his eighties. He passed a few years ago now, rest his soul. He, uh, when I, first time I met him, I, I said, oh, Mr. Epstein, I'm so excited to meet you. The only, you know, all I hope, all of, all I or, or any of my film phony pals, all we hope for is just once in our lives we should touch something, as you did with Casablanca, that's timeless, that's eternal, uh, that is going to, uh, you know, touch the hearts and minds of generations. You know, something like that. And yeah, I, wouldn't it be nice if I could report to you that he said, uh, oh, thanks very much, kind of you to say so. I mean, you know, that would be <laughs> courtesy 101, you know. Uh-uh, he's a writer. you got to understand, he, he grew up in Brooklyn, but he, he spent 70 years in L.A., but he never lost his, the Brooklyn drawl that he had. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Um, and his reply to me was, ah, Casablanca, Schmasablanca, they fucked that up. Uh, you know the part where Claude Rain says such and such, but oh no, they want, we, my brother Philip, I mean, we had a thing with him. And here he is complaining, um, you, you know, more than a half century later, like 60, 70 years later, about how they messed up his movie. What movie? Casablanca. And all I could think is, by God, I, I wish somebody would mess up my movie like they messed up Casablanca. So, um, you know, again, only amateurs and dilettantes think you just settled in eagerly in front of the word processor and, you know, you take a deep breath and you kind of just get into your uh, uh, creative zone and it just kind of flows out of you magically, you know, uh, just ain't that way. Ain't that way. And uh, the other thing is people are never, you can't get no satisfaction. If I may quote the Rolling Stones, it's never as good as people think that it should, as, as the writer herself or himself thinks it ought to be. Um, it's always better in the mind. Um, you know, when it's not an actual tangible thing you hold in your hand, it's always more perfect than when it's a real thing, you know? So there is a, um, quality of frustration and disappointment that walks hand in hand with creativity and professionals know that they accept that they tolerate that they endure it they don't like it and amateurs deny it you know, it's amazing that the, the screenwriter of Casablanca actually, you know, had problems with it uh, because, you know, that's the movie. That's the go-to movie that, uh, you know, almost every screenwriting professor I've ever had or, you know, book I've ever, you know, read. That's one of the mm -hmm. go-to movies that they use as a paradigm for this is, a, this is what a great movie or, or, sorry, this is what an excellent movie is, you know? Yes. Well, it's what a great screenplay is, and it is a great movie. I mean, it's beautifully acted and beautifully directed. Um, uh, I quite agree with you, and yet the actual writer of that, is, you know, thinks ah, so so. But then there is also a trend, uh, kind of a, that I've detected among writers, where if you you talk to a really successful writer, and you ask them what's the favorite thing that you wrote, they're going to pick their most obscure, least successful project, you know, um, almost uh, uh, to make up for the disappointment that they experienced when it was uh, was released. As I say. Um, um, 
uh, one prays for disappointment when one, so, because you'll never be disappointed if something isn't released. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, uh, again, I tell my writers uh, and I tell my colleagues around the table from time to time at UCLA on the faculty that uh, fantasy is for your screenplay, for your life, reality. So you know, as we we, you know, we talked about you know just you know, uh, about writing and you know some disappointments, you know in your classes, what I wanted to ask you know was, when whenever a student comes to you, you know how do you know what what's a good concept and what's not? Well, you don't you don't you never know what's a good concept. You never. I'm going to tell you two concepts right now that are the stupidest. Um, Concepts for movies, you will never hear a stupider con, uh, concept for a movie than, uh, than either of these. Ready? I'm ready. Um, I mean, let, let me, let me uh, before I say that, let me, let me mention um, uh, Blake Snyder and Save the Cat. He argues that um, if you're a, a writer and you have a concept, you should run that concept past some, some other people. He actually says you should stop people in the street. And especially young people, and, and tell them, "Hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm a writer, and I have a notion for an, you know, for a, a screenplay of a concept. And I'm wondering, I'd love to, you know, talk you through it for a minute or two, and and see what you think of it. Whether you think I'm like, you know, uh, be a mistake to to move forward, or is this a worthy thing? Now, imagine you're walking down the street, and somebody comes up to you and wants to run a concept past you, and you and you're generous enough. And most people probably would say, "Well." All right, you know, let's hear it. Supposing you did that, and the guy gave you the following concept. Are you ready? I'm ready. Um, a man stutters, but he has to give a speech. So he hires a speech therapist, and they work on the speech, and then he gives the speech. <laughs> what if somebody, what if you said to the guy, well, I got to tell you honestly, you know, you seem like a really good guy, and, but, you know, that sounds just <laughs> hopeless. I mean, who could possibly care about what you just described. What if he then said to you, well, oh, well, you know, thanks just the same, but uh, uh, respectfully, let me tell you that I happen to think this, this uh, when it's all done, it's going to win the screenplay, you know, best screenplay Oscar and best movie. You'd figure, crank up the lithium on this guy's trip. It's madness, <laughs> you know, and yet I don't have to tell you what movie that is, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, or how about this? Somebody comes up and says, I want to do, I have an idea for a, a cable series. I think it's going to be 62 hours. It's going to run for, you know, five seasons or six seasons. It's going to be 62 hours of programming. And here's the idea. A, here's the concept. A um, high school chemistry teacher gets a cancer diagnosis. Uh, and um, uh, he, uh, so he decides in order to provide for his family to partner with a former incorrigible student and go into the meth trade to manufacture and sell uh, methamphetamine. <laughs> what, what if he said, well, I gotta tell you, that's all, that's a, that's a, that doesn't sound like much of a concept uh, that would work. What if he said, well, I think it's going to turn into 62 hours of unparalleled genius. I don't mind telling you I am one of those people who regards Breaking Bad as uh, one of the greatest achievements in the history of civilization. In fact, last Saturday, I was at, uh, just a week ago today, I was at uh, Pitch Fest in Burbank, big uh, screenwriting festival we have every year, and I actually met Tom Schnauz and Peter Gould, who are uh, the forces behind um, 
Better Call Saul, which of course grew out of uh, Breaking Bad. And uh, I just trembled to meet them. You know, I said, I have to, I have to shake the hands that wrote those, all of those uh, beautiful Breaking Bad episodes. They were prominent writers, producers, and I occasionally I think directed some of the um, Breaking Bad episodes. So it's not about ideas. It's not about concepts. It's about story. Story is all it's about. Story is everything. And um, that's what uh, we preach at UCLA. And, you know, if the proof is in the tasting, uh, we've, we've uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence that we're, we're not wrong about that. Yeah, I, I you know I, I saw the, the some of the accomplishments you know uh, that, that, that some of your students have done, uh, and that that is just phenomenal. And you know that's why you know you are the guy that I wanted to talk to. You were you know when I was in the early stages of this podcast, you were one of the of the people that I actually marked down to talk to, and I'm so happy that we actually got to talk now. Uh, well, because, me too, and I'm flattered uh, by what you're saying, and I thank you kindly. Oh, uh, completely my pleasure. And uh, you know, just you know, to, to to continue talking about your class, you know, you mentioned before uh, an outline. So, do you have your students actually, you know, sort of uh, flush it out, uh, flush out their story through an outline, or and how de- And if so, how detailed do they have to go with that outline? Well, the first answer is yes, I do have them do an outline, uh, but I also tell them to throw away the outline once they get started writing. Um, it's not terribly detailed. Um, when we have our uh, each quarter, we have three ten-week quarters at UCLA, where most uh, institutions have two. Um, semesters, you know, 15-week semesters, uh, and at the be- I work each um, quarter, I've taught the course now over 100 times, with um, students, uh, eight students around the table writing a, uh, uh, you know, feature-length screenplay, and each one has to, uh, we meet once a week for three hours, the whole group, although I do meet with them um, multiple times during the quarter independently, uh, individually, you know, tutorially, one-on-one, where we review the pages um, together, uh, you know, I read their pages, uh, having read their pages, I meet and give them my notes. we, I, I have everybody has to bring the second week of that class. They have to bring in a maximum two-page, kind of a beat sheet, uh, sort of a scene list. It's not really an outline, but it's uh, sort of a document that, that helps the writer um, have a general uh, direction that the script is going. But then I tell everybody uh, to stay open to the surprises. Um, you, the last thing you want to do is drag something back to a, you know an earlier um, notion that you had if it's working better in a new fashion you know I never knew a writer who wasn't surprised by lines of dialogue that uh, her characters spoke you know and seemed to invent by themselves you know by twists and turns in the story uh, that they didn't they weren't even aware of even though they are creating the whole thing uh, there is a kind of a magic uh, to it I uh, I had um, Neil Simon come to class uh, to talk about comedy. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Imagine being in a uh, writing class and having, you know, Neil Simon come down and talk about <laughs> comedy. It's like being in seminary and, uh, you know, there's an announcement at two o'clock in room nine, the Lord will be doing a Q&A, you know. <laughs> um, and I asked Mr. Simon, um, uh, I said, do you laugh at your own jokes? And he said, sure, I do the first time I hear them. 
And I think that's a great line. It's as if his jokes are not made up by him, but but told to him by the characters that he creates. I don't know any writer who hasn't had that experience. So, yes, I do think you have to have an outline, but I think you have to then sort of throw away the outline and expect the script to um, unfold in a way that uh, will surprise not only people who read it, but the person who wrote it. Yeah, uh, you know, very true. And uh, there was a book, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. I think it may have been the artist's way, but um, the the author of that book, Julia Cameron. Yes, I, I, I yes, and and one of the the methods that, uh, she describes in that book was basically, you know, just sort of starting and just going and don't worry about the, you know having a plan you know uh, meaning like you know like a detailed outline meaning well there's something there's something to be said for that the uh, uh, EL Doctorow uh, who's not a screenwriter to my knowledge but a very very successful novelist who's uh, some substantial number of his novels have been made into movies he's probably best known for ragtime um, he uh, he says driving uh, he, he compares writing to driving at night uh, you can only see as far as the headlights reveal but that's long enough uh, that's far, far enough to drive you know the whole journey um, he also describes ragtime how he came up with ragtime um, which is that he was in his uh, he lived in New Rochelle I think he still does New Rochelle which is in Westchester County it's a suburb of New York City uh, and he lives in a home a kind of a uh, early uh, 20, uh, 20th century home and um, uh, he was just stuck. He, he was in his writing room and he just didn't know what to write about. And he was in deep, deep, dark depression and despair, the way writers get. And he finally just wandered around his study and could think of nothing to write about. So he put his head against the wall. He started to like bang his head, literally bang his head <laughs> against the wall. <laughs> and finally he decided, well, the hell with it. He's just going to write about the wall. And he thought about the wall that he was, you know, pushing his forehead up against. And when it went up and when the house was built, and that happened to be around, you know, in the period that Ragtime is built, and what was going on in New Rochelle at that time, and there was a parade and this one uh, fraternal order of something or other, and, and suddenly out of, out of banging his head against the wall and writing about the wall comes Ragtime, which is a gigantic number one New, uh, New York Times bestseller uh, and a sensationally successful film directed by Millish Foreman. Uh, and all of this came about by, you know, banging his head against the wall. Um, so, so, uh, uh, again, the, you, you were asking, um, about, oh yes, about getting started. There's a writer, do you know the name Anne Lamott? Yes. Uh, Annie, Annie Lamott, she's best known. She's a wonderful novelist, and, but she, she's probably best known for the books she's written about writing. Uh, the best known is called Bird by Bird. And uh, she, Annie, uh, preaches that every writer should allow themselves, uh, uh, what she calls a shitty first draft. You got to get it down on the page and stop, you know, being disappointed that it's not genius yet. Um, there's another book I think is very interesting. It wasn't written about writing uh, about uh, 30 years ago. There was a bestseller um, by a writer named Mark McCormick. Mark McCormick actually was a sports um, he invented modern day sports management. He really started in golf and he's the guy who, uh, you know, got multi-million dollar contracts for ball players, um, and really went a long way towards getting, uh, rights for ball players that they, uh, you know, used to not have. 
I remember uh, almost a half a century ago, I was working on a Jerry Lewis picture. I was the dialogue director on a Jerry Lewis picture at Warner Brothers. And on the Jerry liked to slum with ball players, and so he had the star of the Dodgers at that time, Willie Davis, on the movie. Um, and um, Willie was a holdout that winter. You know, it was pre-free agency, uh, and all you could do was refuse to play. So he had held out for this contract. And finally, he, I was driving over to the studio one day. We were shooting in December and January, you know, off-season for baseball. I heard on the radio that Willie had um, signed his contract. So I asked him when I got to the studio. I had no right to ask him, but I asked him, how much? <laughs> so, what, so what do you think he got for uh, the 1970 season? He was 29 years old. He had hit almost 400 the previous season. He was in his prime. He was one of the best players in baseball, what do you think was his salary uh, for the 1970 season? Take a guess. I'm going to take a guess at 30000 for the year. That's a really good guess. It was not as bad as that. It was actually 50000 Well, 50000 pe- people will guess, oh, you know, quarter of a million, half a million, you know, a million dollars, and so on. Why do I mention this? Uh, it had to do with, uh, oh, yeah, Mark McCormick writing about sports management. He wrote a book called uh, – he went to the Harvard Business School, and he wrote a book called um, – what they don't teach you in the Harvard Business School. And it was kind of a street savvy, you know, wisdom for uh, uh, MBAs and CEOs, you know, and CFOs and CEOs and COOs and whatever, um, you know, major executives. And we were saying uh, one of his rules is um, it's quite wonderful, uh, uh, I believe, uh, and it works very well for people in the arts, and, including writers. And here it is. Don't let excellence stand in the way of good. You got something that sort of works, go with it, you know, at least for the time being. And then you'll come back and rewrite. Um, but I think that's what slows people down sometimes they uh, and stops them cold, you know, is uh, it's not excellent every inch of the way as they go. It's merely good. And I'm saying uh, if you can be merely good, uh, give thanks to God and move on. <laughs> You know, you mentioned uh, Bird by Bird. Uh, that, it's funny you mentioned that because I was actually talking to, to uh, people about you know books on writing, and you mm-hmm. know, and I and you know usually the book if we just talk about writing as a whole, the number one book I always hear about is Stephen King's On Writing. That is my favorite book by Stephen. It's a brilliant book. And by the way, you'll recall uh, what he has to say about ideas. He he launched his whole career with Carrie. That was his big success, uh, his breakthrough. And by the way, uh, you you may remember from the book that um, he'd gotten some distance into it, and then he despaired of it, and he threw it away. And Tabitha, his wife, Tabitha King, found it in the garbage. And and took it out and read it. Said, "What's this?" And she said, "What's this? I found it in the garbage." She said, "Ah, it's just not working out. I'm abandoning." And she said, "What do you mean? It's just great. You should keep going." So that's how Carrie came about. But do you remember how it started? <clears throat> Stephen was. Um, living in Maine where he still lives and he was a high school teacher and he always wondered what the uh, he knew what the boys room and the boys lockers looked like but he was curious what the girls bathrooms and the girls uh, lockers looked like so one day when the uh, uh, after school hours when when school was closed but some of the teachers were still there and the lockers and the bathrooms were were uh, deserted. He went into the women's, uh, you know, the girls' bathroom and the girls' uh, lockers, and he discovered, guess what? They're just exactly like the boys' lockers, except for two differences. 
One is that in the showers, the boys' lockers had um, gang showers. You know, just a great big room with nozzles, you know, uh, on, on the wall. And the girls had curtains. They had, you know, modesty curtains. They were, uh, they were tracks on the, on the um, ceiling of the shower room and um, uh, that provided for uh, curtains so that they had, you know, more modest uh, uh, experience when they showered. Uh, the other difference was that, was that in the girls' um, locker rooms and bathrooms, there were these little vending machines, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, look at Carrie. It's all about um, this girl who comes into menstruation and doesn't know what it is, is mocked and ridiculed by the other girls who see her in the shower and they can see blood running under the curtain. If you saw the movie, if you remember it, or if you read the book, Mm. Uh, just looking in the locker room leads to a thing which he sold back then, uh, 40 years ago, for $400,000, adjusted for inflation, it'd be about $3 million today. Uh, And it all came about from... Curtains and tampons. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I remember the opening to that movie, and it did heavily involve that. And uh, I, you know, and you know, even the remake, uh, which I remember pieces of. I don't remember as much of the original, but uh, you know, that had. I think that it's a similar, uh, a similar uh, beginning. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, well, I don't see the remake, but uh, I remember Sissy Spacek in the beginning. Uh, she's, you know, very beginning of the hour. She's, you know, the, the movie. She's in the shower uh, at school, and there were other girls in the showers, and suddenly blood is running, and she clearly does know, not know what this is about. She's never been taught by her parents or anybody else about menstruation, and she thinks there's something horribly wrong with her, and that, you know, she's evil. And, and, and then the other girls... Uh, see the blood and they see that she's uh, upset about it and you know there's this terrible bullying uh, um, uh, attitude that that emerges among uh, adolescents men and women and they start to attack her and so on I mean that's what drives the whole movie I mean this movie about revenge uh, isn't it and uh, she ultimately you know avenges them at the end of the the movie but it all derives from from that very very simple uh, premise and if you describe that to somebody superficially, they would think it's pretty hopeless. So again, I think that the, one of the biggest mistakes that writers make is uh, to uh, assign too much value, uh, too much credit to the idea. Um, I like to tell writers, when you have a great idea, if you have a really great idea for a movie, that's all you got. I mean, what remains after that? The, uh, uh, you know, the the incidents, the anecdotes, the events, the characters, the dialogues, the description, I mean, everything remains after that. The idea is really rather useless. What what has value is the story. And think about it. You can tell the idea for a movie in a, in a you know, a minute is about 40 seconds more than you need to tell an idea. Uh, but to tell the story takes you, you know, as long as the movie. For example, I was talking, I was saying to somebody the other day what I had just said to you a little while ago about talking about the King's speech. I was describing, uh, as I did to you, a man, a man stutters, uh, he has to give a speech, he hires a speech therapist and gives a speech. So somebody said, yeah, well, you left out that the man who stutters is the king of England. 
and then it's the 1930s and war clouds are gathering in uh, you know on the continent and that uh, he's having a romance with uh, Wallace Simpson a uh, you know an American commoner and so on and so forth well that's the story that isn't that the story that's not the idea any longer it's the story and that's where the value is yeah, you know, uh, somebody once uh, told me that uh, you know I- ideas are a dime a dozen, but at that at that point you're overpaying for the ideas. Yeah, well, I'll tell you something. I have a uh, sideline. I have, you know, I, I am. A, if you ask me what I do, uh, I would say I'm a writer. If I, if you know, if I were in the elevator and have time to to respond, you know. But the truth is, I also am a uh, an educator, pretty well known educator. Uh, but that's not the end of it. That's just the beginning of it. I'm also a consultant, and I consult in, um, you know, I'm a public speaker, um, and I'm a media commentator. I do a lot of appearances on um, <clears throat> talk shows, television and radio. And um, as a consultant, I do two kinds of consulting. One is, uh, I've already told you about where I work with writers. I consult with writers as a script doctor. I give them support in working out their their scripts. Um, and uh, the other kind of consulting that I do is in the uh, courts. Uh, I am a, a court-authorized expert in uh, intellectual property law, particularly copyright infringement and plagiarism. Who wrote the movie? And um, I have uh, uh, testified, I've been an expert witness in, oh, between 30 and 40 court cases over the years uh, where there's litigation over, um, you know, who wrote the movie. Somebody thinks the movie was stolen from them. And over my over the years, I've, I've on occasion been retained as a witness by plaintiffs, but also by um, defendants. I was a witness, for example, in the very legendary case at Paramount involving uh, Art Buckwald, the uh, famous humorist, and uh, Paramount, the producer of the movie uh, Coming to America, an Eddie, movie, uh, Eddie, Eddie Murphy movie, mm-hmm. an Eddie Movie Murphy, <laughs> uh, where... Um, uh, Buckwalt sued, claiming they'd stolen it from him and so on. I, I testified that the, the, you know, they didn't steal it from him, uh, that it was a different movie. But uh, I only mention it because um, it is the mis uh, appropriation of value regarding ideas that has, if I could put it this way, put orthodontia on my children's teeth and paid for their fancy ass, nosebleed, costly. Um, uh, private school education. <laughs> My wife and I like my kids are grown up now. God bless them. But we used to joke that we saved up enough money to send our kids to college, but we spent it all on high school, you know. Um, and what I mean by all of that is people uh, attach too much value to the idea. They 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 had an idea for a movie. They see another movie that has a similar idea, and they 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 think it must have been stolen from them. Um, when they don't get that uh, it's just an idea. Um, ideas are not protectable. It's the expression of the idea over the length and breadth of a narrative uh, where, the, where the value is. You know, you have to show what the courts call substantial and ideally strikingly similar um, examples from one to the other. You know, not just that the boy and a girl fall in love, they break up and then they get back together again. You know, so, so this misses understanding of ideas has put a lot of money in my pocket. 
you know, it's it's you know uh, funny you mentioned that because uh, about uh, maybe two summers ago, I actually met um, a professor who teaches at uh, Yale, and he actually also does um, you know uh, does copyright and, and things like that. And he was actually mm-hmm. involved in the Avatar case because some mm-hmm. some writers came and said James Cameron stole their idea for Avatar, and they wanted to, you know they wanted a you know a couple million actually you know more than a couple million dollars, but uh, and he was involved in that whole litigation. Interesting. I don't mind bragging that it's a, a student of ours uh, named Lita Calagridis, um, very successful writer. She wrote much of um, uh, Avatar. Uh, Jim gives her credit not as writer, but she does have a uh, producer credit, and it's her own card. Her name stands all alone on the screen. Um, but the fact of the matter is she really wrote a lot of that movie. She's not suing or complaining, you understand. She mm-hmm. idolizes uh, Jim Cameron, and I think he's a great I know him too. He's been very good to us and our students in our program. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Lita was paid millions and millions of dollars for her work on uh, Avatar, and she's, she's not, not complaining. But, yeah, I believe that any, any big uh, movie, uh, you know, a lot of people know about the, um, the Buckwald case. It was covered, uh, you know, the Coming to America case that I mentioned earlier. Uh, it was covered gavel to gavel. It was held live, gavel to gavel, on uh, the trial on uh, on CNN. I remember. And a lot of people don't know that uh, there, that, that particular litigation was one among seven or eight cases where people had claimed, you know, other people had claimed they'd written the movie, you know, independently. There's an expression that every uh, um, success has many parents, but failure is an orphan. In other words, if a movie makes no money and nobody hears about it, no one will sue. But if you have a great big hit like Avatar, uh, there's going to be bunches of lawsuits. I know that my old classmate, George Lucas, from USC Film School, uh, we were film school students together all those years ago. Uh, you know, there have been multiple suits. Star Wars was stolen from him, uh, you know, from them. I, I remember that he went up to Canada to... Um, it would have been easier for him to just settle, uh, which is what they usually do. But he's a very funky, feisty guy, George, and nobody's going to say that. Uh, you know, he's not going to going to consent to anybody. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, he's never going to agree that any that he ever ripped anybody off. Um, and so he actually went to the trial, and uh, somebody had compl- uh, claimed that uh, he, the plaintiff, had had invented the Wookie, and George had stolen that from him, you know. So, uh, you know, it's like when my, my son was little, if he couldn't find his baseball mitt, he'd say, who stole my glove? You know, it couldn't be that he misplaced it, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so people always think that if there's something similar, it must have been stolen from, from them. Uh, occasionally it happens, but it's most exceptional. And when you mistake the exception for the rule, you fall on your face every time. <laughs> Very true. Uh, you know, and and the more I hear about you know cases like that, you know, Richard, the more I hear that it is either you know a hey, you know what, two people, you know, great minds think alike, as they say. So you know, it is possible if you know two people that live in you know maybe the opposite ends of the earth came up with a similar idea. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, you and I could go to the video store. You know, well, if the video stores are still around, you and I could go to Netflix and we we could see there are there's a, there's a plethora mm-hmm. of movies that maybe share. Maybe the same scene, or maybe share like the same you know plot points, or maybe share the same you know character uh, uh, character attributes. Some- 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Something you know, mm-hmm, similar mm-hmm. along those lines. Again, the only thing I, I, I totally, I totally agree. Theme, many movies have the same theme. Uh, Jaws. I happen to know now. I'm blanking. Carl Gottlieb, who uh, who wrote Jaws. Um, of course, he was adapting the Peter Benchley book. Um, was was uh, uh, telling me that the uh, you know he had conversations with Bentley. Um, Jaws is based on um, a play by uh, uh, the the great uh, Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen. Um, and the play is called An Enemy of the People. It's a very well-known, you know, sort of a classic play. I guess it's a 150 years old or something. Um, and it's set in a uh, health resort, a health spa that's famous for its waters, uh, that there are healing waters. People come from, uh, you know, a thousand miles, uh, you know, to have their, their maladies healed in the, the waters, the magical um, waters of this particular uh, health spa. Uh, and the protagonist in the movie is um, uh, Dr. Stockman. He's the uh, medical director of the baths. Now, this doesn't sound at all like Jaws, but consider this. At the beginning of the movie, he discovers, the doctor does, that the waters are actually polluted and that they're making people ill. And uh, this is a really important discovery when, uh, when he announces it. Uh, he thinks people will honor him uh, because uh, uh, he's saving a lot of people, a lot of illness and even death, you know, because they'll stay out of that, that bad water. And it'll also get the resort to do whatever it needs to do if it can be done to, you know, repair that, right? So that doesn't sound terribly uh, like Jaws, and yet it is because the the reaction of the of the health spa and the community around it that lives off the income brought in from tourists coming in to uh, be guests at the spa, um, they instead of honoring him, they they uh, you know degrade him, they deride him, and they declare him an enemy of the people. Uh, and that's exactly the deal with Richard Dreyfus in as the sheriff in in Jaws. And Jaws, if you remember that, that, he realizes it's the start of the season. It's a beach town, and suddenly there's a dangerous shark. Uh, and if if word gets out that there's all of that danger and people are, aren't supposed to use the beach, well, they're not going to do a beach vacation, at least not there, you know. So instead of um, honoring him for making this really important life-saving discovery, they they degrade him, they humiliate him, they scorn him, they mock him, they loathe him. Um, and so the theme is history hates a truth teller, something like that. And that's the same theme for Jaws and for um, uh, the enemy, an enemy of the people, even though they so, – so what's the difference between them? The difference is the story, totally different story, the setting, the dialogue, the characters, everything's different, though they have the same theme, quite, quite true. So you're going to see movies that have similar themes, but you can't protect a theme. All you can protect is a story, and it has to be substantive. This happens, that happens, this happens, that happens. The same stuff happens in both. And then you're starting to get onto a, um, uh, you know, an enterprise that is uh, protectable. Um, uh, it's just a very, uh, very crazy arena. Um, the truth of the matter is studios, producers, production companies, networks, 
cable companies, they have no uh, selfish interest in stealing material. They don't want to risk the tens of millions of dollars that it takes to put together a series or a, or a movie. Indeed, Avatar um, uh, was a half a billion dollars. Um, the uh, Nobody's going to make that kind of investment and try to cut somebody out of one-tenth of one percent of that, which would be uh, you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions of dollars uh, for the script and put the whole rest of the project into jeopardy just trying to shave off a, a point or even two from the budget by stealing the script. You follow what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, it just doesn't, it, it, You know, there's a... Uh, um, I'm not a lawyer, uh, though I've spent a lot of time around lawyers um, doing this kind of, kind of work, and there's a... Uh, there's a Latin phrase, I forget what it is, or something like qui bono, you know, who benefits from this? If you you look at a uh, legal case and you want to say, well, who's in, you know, you suddenly discover, for somebody dies and you suddenly discover that uh, they had a huge insurance policy and it all goes to this particular beneficiary. Well, that beneficiary had a, a substantial stake and a great reward in this person dying. Maybe, maybe she or he killed him, right? Um, so, uh, uh, movie companies have a stake in not stealing material. Nobody benefits by that, uh, and um, indeed they suffer greatly. So I think it does happen, but I, I believe it's vastly, vastly exaggerated. You know, uh, you, you mentioned you know your classmate was uh, George Lucas. You know, do, do you have any other you know uh, interesting stories or any other funny stories about you and George? Well, you know, I, I am the uncredited writer of the first two drafts of American Graffiti. Um, there's, there's no controversy about it. George doesn't tell it any differently. Um, the, uh, there's nothing unusual in Hollywood about uh, uh, a substantial number of writers being paid for the, their services on a particular picture, and not all of them getting credit. Credit is a, uh, uh, a judgment that is uh, rendered by the Writers Guild. Um, so I, yeah, I worked there. <laughs> I knew George pretty well. We weren't very close friends in film school, uh, but uh, we knew each other and we were at parties together. And we were in classes together. I was in awe of his achievements as a film student, as we all were back then at USC. Um, his uh, legendary student film, THX 11384EB, uh, which became a feature length film, ultimately not as good uh, as the shorter version, but it was his first movie. It was done at Warner Brothers with Francis Ford Coppola uh, producing. Um, uh, I, I was just, you know, in awe of, of, of his uh, talent as a graphic artist, as a filmmaker when I was in, in film school. When we worked together on graffiti, I didn't really work closely with him. He uh, uh, had, uh, he was out of the country, actually had the, the long version of sex. We called it sex, THX. Um, he was bringing that to Cannes, the uh, festival. He was traveling with his then-wife, Marcia. They were backpacking around Europe, and they were going to end up at Cannes, and uh, they needed a draft of graffiti uh, in a hurry, and I was asked to, to, to write it in a couple of weeks, which I did on that first draft. Um, and uh, it did not – he was not uh, pleased with it for – he complimented it for – it, uh, and he has over the years complimented for its professionalism and all of that. Um, but he, he was bothered by two aspects of it. One was the sex in it. Uh, you know, I, I saw it as a, a tale of um, – 
you know, adolescence, coming of age and all of that. And that's a time of sexual awakening. And, uh, you know, if you look at George's films, they're kind of like clinical uh, saran wrap. As far as sexuality is concerned, there sort of isn't any, you know. Mm. Um, the uh, uh, and, and I'm uh, a sexual pervert. Not really. Just kidding. But <laughs> but uh, I think that, you know, in my own book, I've written a, at, at length about adolescence. My first novel was a, uh, a coming of age uh, in New York City. And there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, sexuality in it. Young people um, flirting and, 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 and more. And George didn't like that. He's kind of uptight about those sorts of things. Uh, and the other thing he didn't like was that it wasn't close enough to his own experience, uh, you know, growing up in Modesto. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a New York kid. I grew up in Queens and went to school, went to high school in Manhattan, you know, and I didn't know anything about cars and, and stuff like that. Um, so we never really worked together on it, except after the first draft, it was a two draft deal. Uh, we did we did meet uh, at my house, and then we met. I remember we had another meeting at a restaurant in Hollywood, um, and we spoke at length uh, on the phone uh, after the uh, you know during the process of writing the second draft and and so on. I was well paid uh, for the work that I did, and I'm not complaining. Um, you know, uh, uh, again, the the credit decision is something that is uh, rendered by the Writers Guild, and um, uh, the uh, uh, so it's really their judgment, not the studio's judgment, not George's judgment, and, and so on. Um, he's a uh, powerhouse, you know. He's a kind of a gruff, uh, nerdy, scratchy-voiced little guy. But, I mean, he's, a, he's just the greatest genius I've ever known. I mean, the impact of... of um, that his work has had across, I mean, who on the world, you know, who around the world doesn't know some aspect of the, of the Star Wars franchise hasn't been touched by some aspect of it. Right. I mean, you know, don't you think it's realistic to suggest that billions of people have heard of it at least. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Who do you know in all of human history who uh, touched so many people, got into the consciousness and the awareness of of so many people all around across the globe in so little time um, as George did? Uh, I also believe that the influence that he's had, the influence of Star Wars, I'm, I'm not really crazy about the movies. John Melius, our uh, film school uh, alum, you know, a fellow alumna, alumnus, um, you know, calls them pap. Uh, I, I, I watch all of them. I've seen the first one, uh, which is, I guess, the fourth one by a certain measure and part of the second one and so on. But the the uh, lesson that they put out there, I think, is a really, really um, uh, affirmative, healing, positive message across the world. Um, a very Judeo-Christian um, message, which is that the power of love is greater than the power of hate. The uh, the power of God is stronger than the power of Satan. The power of of construction is bigger than the power of destruction. Uh, I mean, you know, you have a fairy tale. And so again, again, going back to, to ideas we were talking before, what's the idea behind Star Wars? I'll tell you what it is. Uh, and you already know what it is. It's um, a fairy tale in space. Mm-hmm. The bad guys abduct the princess and, you know, the good guys rescue her. That, that's Star Wars, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. You know, so what makes Star Wars so special? And the answer is the frame by frame, moment by moment, scene by scene uh, action in it and the dialogue that the, that the characters speak and, and, and so on. 
So, uh, you know, George is a very, um, uh, you, you know, he's not a very available kind of a guy. I don't think a lot of it, people would describe him as warm and, and cuddly. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, when I worked with him, uh, uh, both on campus and off campus, it was certainly a professional um, arrangement and agreement and, um, you know, whatever disagreements that, that were had were, uh, you know, were experienced were not unusual uh, among um, artists working on a movie together. Yeah, very, it's very understandable. And uh, I was actually uh, his house guest. I remember my wife and I, in August of 1969, he had already left L.A. He was living up in Marin. And... Um, I love to say uh, that my class at USC, we were the first to move on. You know, when we came to film school, there was no tradition of moving from film school into the professional community. In fact, I have an article right now. It's just come out like yesterday or the day before in uh, <clears throat> the, the current issue, the most recent issue, which has just come out, <clears throat> excuse me, of Written By, which is the Writers Guild uh, monthly journal. And it's called Film School Haven or Hoax. And I'm arguing that, uh, you know, in, in it, I'm, I'm arguing, of course, of course, I have a vested interest in it, but I still believe it's observably, verifiably, empirically true. The film school is not a hoax, uh, you know, but very, very helpful in um, in getting, uh, you know, people into the movie business. Um, I cite in the article 11, 11 titles of movies written, I'm sorry, uh, directed or produ- and or produced by Steven Spielberg that were written by, at least in part, by UCLA uh, trained writers who have on-screen credits for those movies, 11 of them. Jurassic Park 1, 2, 3, Indiana Jones 2 and 3, that's five right there. Uh, the Terminal, Munich, Lincoln, uh, War of the Worlds, Eagle Eye, Eagle Eye was produced by Steven. Uh, Travis Wright was the writer, our uh, student a few years ago. What am I leaving out? Uh, oh, the TV series, Amazing Stories. Um, our students in the last uh, six or seven years have had five, uh, just in the last six or seven years, five um, Academy Award uh, Best Screenplay nominations and have won three Oscars for Best Screenplay in the last five years. So screen- between now and then, now being today and then being the time uh, now almost a half a century ago that I was going to film school in classes with George Lucas, the big difference is that um, film school has gone from being a dead end professionally to being the single most uh, advantageous way to uh, enter the, uh, uh, the film industry. Uh, so I like to say that our class at USC, we were the first ones to go on to own Hollywood, except for George who owns Marin County. <laughs> so, uh, in any event, my wife and I, in 1969, in August, we took a uh, a motor trip, just a vacation, a holiday up the West Coast. <clears throat> we drove all the way up, ultimately, to the uh, Oregon border, the California-Oregon border, uh, the Umpquad Dunes. There are some beautiful... Um, um, uh, sand dunes along the uh, the Northern California, Southern Oregon coast, just exquisite. We camped along there, and so. But on the way, uh, we stopped at San Francisco, and I remember I had um, uh, we had brunch one Sunday uh, morning um, in Sausalito with some old film schools pals, including George and Marcia. Uh, also, John Melius, if you know that name, I referred to him earlier. Mm-hmm. 
John, you know, invented Schwarzenegger. You know, he did Conan and bunches of other other movies. He wrote. John's probably best known for uh, his script of um, Apocalypse. Apocalypse Now. Um, so it was my wife and I and George and Marsha and Melius, also Caleb Deschanel, who's probably famous now for being the father of very famous actors' daughters. But Caleb is, of course, himself a multi-nominated um, cinematographer. He's one of the most uh, respected, the most successful uh, cameramen in the history of uh, of the industry. Um, and there were some other people. There was Walter Murch, who's very famous. Walter actually won two Oscars for sound design and something else in the same uh, you know year. The same Oscar ceremony he had to come up twice to the stage to pick up his Oscars. Uh, he was there with his wife uh, Aggie, a British woman, and then was also Caleb, as I mentioned, and a, a producer, a now a well-known producer, David. Uh, Lester, who um, uh, produced all of Ron Shelton's films, you know, Bull Durham and uh, on and on and on. And I remember Marsha invited us to uh, uh, to be their, their house guest. We said, well, we're, we're, we're uh, moving on up the coast tonight. You know, I mean, right after this meal, we're driving north. Uh, she said, but on the way down, if you want to stay with us, uh, feel free. So we did. We were actually the house guests overnight uh, when he was living in Mill Valley. In um, uh, Marin, it was before his gigantic success with uh, with Graffiti. Graffiti wouldn't come out yet for about three years. I think it was in 72, 71 or 72. Um, no, 73 it came out. It was released in 73. Um, so we were all, you know, well, film school pals. When I look back, um, uh, you know, at the time we weren't really aware of it. Uh, you got to look back to see it, but talk about right place, right time. You know, I had come out, I thought to California for three weeks uh, from New York. Uh, and at the last moment, I just fell into film school at SC on a kind of a whim. Uh, and, uh, you know, somebody turned around and was <laughs> 10 years later, you know, uh, I had never really planned to settle in uh, California, much less to become a, um, a screenwriter, much, much, much less to be a tenured professor, you know, and uh, legal expert and so on. There's a, a, a great example of staying open to the surprises in a life narrative. I think, uh, you know, I'm always telling writers in your dramatic narrative, in your life narrative, stay open to the surprises that all of the people I know who are enjoying what they're doing are also surprised by what they're doing. They're not doing what they planned to do. Uh, people who, who do what they plan to do are people, uh, I know a lot of such people, and they are for the most part doctors. I grew up in New York City, and the big thing to be was a doctor. So I know a lot of uh, medical professionals, and um, they're very successful, they're very, they're, you know, they're well paid and so on, but not all, some of them are very happy, but not all of them, many of them are unhappy. Uh, this one wishes he was an oceanographer, that one wishes he was a uh, anthropologist, uh, and all of them <laughs> seem to wish they were also screenwriters sometimes, it seems like. Um, and the point is that, uh, you know, there's a Chinese curse, may your dreams come true. A curse. <laughs> Um, it's a little scary when, when you accomplish what you set out to accomplish and, and it doesn't really feel right. I have a friend who's just retired from medicine. He's done very, very well. He's respected. Um, he's made a good living, but he's always, um, been lukewarm at best about, about his career. Never really in, enjoyed it. On the other hand, I know another doctor, a friend of mine who went to film, who went, went to medical school, 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But just didn't like practicing medicine. What he liked was computers. And very early in the computer revolution, he got into the um, uh, uh, the writing of software for computerizing pathology labs. He was a pathologist. His specialty was pathology. And that branched on out, out to um, general uh, medical you know, medical record keeping in general, they were computerizing all of that. You know, previously a doctor would see a symptom and would sort of think about it. Now you can, you know, really search the databases. And um, uh, this has resulted not just in convenience, but in the savings of countless lives, if you think about it. Um, so my friend is, um, uh, we, we were visiting with him. He lives in Seattle. Um, we uh, uh, we were visiting with him and his wife old dear old pals of ours some months ago and his house is on Lake Washington. Uh, there's a dock behind it. And on one side is his power boat. And on the other side is his sailboat across the lake and a little uh, to the South is the, the, the Bill Gates compound. Uh, I mean, this guy has done real well, my friend, and he loves his work and he didn't jettison his medical education. Um, he very much exploited it. And that's not a dirty word. It just means make the most of it. He integrated it in, into his career, his very successful career, a career that he, he loves, that he just in, enjoys enormously. Um, my point is he's not doing what he expected to do and he's loving it. And that's, that's what I'm, what, uh, the point that I'm making is that it's possible to over plan and kind of outsmart yourself in life. And also, and you mentioned Richard, you know, sometimes wants to be a screenwriter, you know, it, it's kind of like everyone, I think it was uh, Joe Esterhaus, the, uh, the screenwriter of uh, Basic Instinct once said, uh, you know, it used to be everyone wants to write the great American novel. Now it's the great American screenplay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, Joe is a friend of mine. Uh, I know him well over a number of, number of years and I'm aware, uh, aware that he said that and it, it, uh, it seems to be true. Um, uh, it seems to be true. People, people want to, uh, you know, there are more people who years ago would have been writing novels than are writing screenplays. I do both. I've just finished a novel and I've had modest success, um, in, um, uh, both areas. And it's interesting. I was just lecturing on this. This is my subject <clears throat> a week ago at the pitch fest. We were talking about how, um, it's funny. Let me put it this way. There's a, uh, there's a political figure you've heard of, Governor Christie from New Jersey. He's running for president. And um, he was, I saw him um, sometime last week, early in the week, he was bitterly uh, denying that he was what somebody had accused him of. Somebody had accused him, called him, and characterized him as a particular word, a very, very evil word, the most evil word that you can, uh, you know, use to characterize a, a political figure that, these days in this country. Can you guess what the word was? I'll tell you. Somebody called him a moderate. They said that he was moderate. <laughs> imagine imagine that, that used to be like a compliment, you know? Um, he was denying that he was a moderate. Now, why do I bother you about that? Because there's a word in Hollywood that Hollywood seems to uh, have come to hate. Are you ready? Original. They don't want to do anything original. In fact, this, the 
disappointing release of Tomorrowland. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Tomorrowland. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, with, with Clooney. <clears throat> they're kind of disappointed. They say that they're not going to do any more original movies, you know, because of Tomorrowland is original movie. They only want to do tentpoles, remakes, uh, reboots, prequels and sequels, adaptations of material from other media. They don't want to do original screenplays. And I think that's a real pity because, um, uh, you know, they're, what they're trying to do is play it safe. And playing it safe is the most hazardous course you can follow in uh, in art. Uh, you have to take the risks. You have to embrace the risks, invite, solicit, encourage the risks, it seems to me. And um, uh, nevertheless, it, it, as, if you're a writer and you have an original screenplay, what are you going to do with that? Nobody's making original screenplays, or certainly these studios are not. They're not buying spec scripts and turning them into movies. They're developing projects inside. I had a writer who wants to, he's a huge fan of, of Batman and he wanted of the Batman franchise and he wanted to pay me a substantial sum to give him notes on a Batman script that he wrote. I said, but you, you can't do anything with a script. Uh, Warner brothers on the right to, to, you know, uh, Batman. So he said, well, I'll show it to Warner brothers, but Warner brothers isn't going to look at the, a Batman script. They're not going to buy a speculated, uh, Batman script. They're going to develop it with writers they know who work with producers they know. Those writers may very well be former students of mine, mind you, and I'm happy to brag about that. Uh, but they're not going to do this guy's script. Not only are they going to make it, they're not even going to read it, and they're going to make a point not to read it for reasons that go back to what we were talking about earlier having to do with litigation. If it's Batman, it's certainly going to be similar. It's going to have certain similarities to the does not have franchise, don't you think? <laughs> and then they'll be, they'll be, their lawyers at Warner Brothers will be telling you, you mustn't look at this, and you must notify, you must send this back to him and tell him we haven't looked at it, we don't accept the unsolicited material, and so on, because he's going to claim when the new Batman came out that we that we really used it, and we didn't, um, you know, uh, uh, we just we stole it from him. Um, so, uh, we're, so we're talking about originality. So, how do you get around that as a writer? Uh, and the answer is, uh, and I've had modest success with this repeatedly in my career. Uh, I don't consider myself to be any kind of superstar, but the, uh, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal calls me. They, 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 what did they say about me? They said, oh, I am um, a writer of substantial professional experience. You know, there's no uh, literary laundry I haven't taken in. I've written feature assignments, feature length movie assignments for all of the studios, almost every studio. And um, I've sold material to all three major broadcast networks. Um, and I have had almost half a dozen books published by, by uh, all of them by major uh, New York publishers. I've had bestsellers in nonfiction, um, my screenwriting books in print, you know, over 30 years. My um, last novel uh, made the Times list um, bestseller list only for a week and only at number 13. But, you know, the Times list, it's not a, not a small thing. And the reason I mentioned it to you is that um, uh, my very first novel uh, I had written as a screenplay, and I just couldn't uh, – it's been said Hollywood is the one place on earth where you could die of encouragement. I had so much encouragement over that script, but what I never had was a nickel for it. And finally, there was a um, 
uh, strike and you couldn't market to Hollywood anyway. And so naively, I turned it into, I used it as an outline for a novel and wrote a novel. I was naive about how cruel the fiction market is, especially the first fiction market. And that naive pace served me very well because I sold the thing right away. And, um, you know, had I been more savvy about the business, maybe I wouldn't have, uh, you know, uh, uh, invested the time and effort it would take to turn that into a novel, knowing how grim the chances were. So you understand how ignorance is your friend, <laughs> naivete is your pal. Um, now, as soon as it was sold as a novel, it, uh, it was sold as a movie. The, uh, uh, Warner Brothers, a studio that had turned it down when it was a screenplay, bought the same screenplay as soon as it had been published as a novel because it was no longer original. It was now an adaptation. It had been tested in another market. The executives, if every every day in Hollywood that an executive doesn't have to make a decision about anything is a victory for her. She hasn't put her neck out. She hasn't risked anything. You know, if you don't do anything, you'll never do anything wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So, and every movie that does get made starts with the anticipation by the executives who are responsible for spending the money to produce it, um, it starts with the, their expectation that it will fail. And they're trying to figure out how to explain away the anticipated failure of the movie. I don't see how that can do anything other than to suppress creativity and imagination and so on. But you understand how somebody could say if, if, if the movie comes out and it bombs – uh, for example, uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, which was produced by a friend of mine and a colleague of mine. He's also a professor at UCLA, Peter Goober, very successful producer. He was the head of Warner Brothers. He was head of Columbia. He's produced a lot of major, major movies. Uh, well, one of the movies that he produced, it was a terrible bomb. There's even a book written about about it, um, uh, was Bonfire of the Vanities. And when people say to him, Peter... Uh, how uh, how could you invest so much money in, in this turkey? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. He can say, I mean, you must be some lousy executive. We should get rid of you. He has a defense and the defense is, wait a minute. Uh, this was a best-selling novel by Tom Wolfe. I also had uh, Bruce Willis and Tom Hanks in the movie. Uh, the screenplay was uh, adapted by um, Michael Christopher, a very, very uh, distinguished, uh, respected writer. The director was Brian De Palma. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. You understand what I'm saying? So suddenly, because the, with my own novel, when it was sold as a movie, the producer who bought it could say, if anybody asked him, how did, how did you buy this? He could say, what do you mean Warner Books published this? You know, major publisher in New York published this. So uh, I'm not the only one crazy enough to think that there's merit in this. So I've been recommending to writers that they um, contemplate, they write a screenplay, but instead of showing the screenplay, write an original screenplay. Um, certainly you don't want to do an, an adaptation of material that you don't own. Um I mean, there lie dragons. What are you going to do with something if you don't have the underlying rights? Um, so so uh, what I'm recommending is they write an original screenplay, but then instead of uh, marketing the screenplay at first, they use it as an elaborate outline for their novel and write it as a novel and then try to sell the, the work as a novel. And once it's sold as a novel, 
they can uh, get action as a screenplay. I've done that multiple times now. And right now I'm working on, I've uh, just finished a novel that's based on a screenplay. I wrote the screenplay last summer and now I'm, I'm, uh, I finished a draft of the novel. It's just a draft. I still have to do a bunch of work on it. But once you've got the screenplay, most of the heavy list, lifting has been done. I regard, just like we were talking earlier about the, the most valuable part of the equation is the story. Once you've got the story all worked out, uh, you've got the characters, the dialogue. I mean, most of that's there in the screenplay, isn't it? To turn that into a novel is relatively easy. Underscore relative. There's, um, you know, relatively, there's not a, um, you know, no writing is easy. But uh, for me, the hardest part of writing is uh, the heavy lifting is in, in devising, creating the plot, because the plot, the story really involves everybody else. The story is character. Uh, story is dialogue. Story is description. It's everything. I mean, who's the richest character? I mean, imagine somebody say, well, wait a minute, Richie, what about character? Isn't that important? Well, who's the greatest character in all of English language dramatic literature? Isn't it Hamlet? Uh, certainly Hamlet would be a, a good candidate, don't you think? Um, so uh, what's the description? Have you ever read Hamlet? Do you remember the uh, playwright's description of Hamlet? Here it is. It's three words. Prince of Denmark. That's it. There's nothing about melancholy. Um, so where does this Hamlet come from? And the answer is from the story, the stuff he does and the stuff he says inside the context of the uh, story. So it's really, really all about uh all about story. So once the story is worked out, you have uh, the opportunity to uh, retell that story as a novel. And it's just easier to write a novel. It's easier because you're not stuck with just sight and sound like you are in a movie. Uh, you're not, um, you know, I, I, we mentioned George Clooney a moment ago. I read a screenplay called the American. I didn't see the movie. It's a dreadful screenplay. Uh, Clooney was in it. I think the only reason George was in it because it was shot near his where he lives in northern Italy, and you know, he lives uh, Lake Como, at the edge of the uh, Swiss border up there. And they shot it up there, so I think that's the only reason I can imagine that George would have been, you know, uh, had anything to do with this movie would be because uh, it was convenient. It was in the neighborhood, you saw, so to speak. But in any event, there's a scene in the movie where. He, um, the main character is sitting, is at a uh, uh, cafe ordering a bottle of wine. He's with a girl and the waiter comes up and offers him, you know, taste of the wine and he samples the wine. And it actually says in the script that he takes a sip of the wine. It tastes slightly flinty with notes of chestnuts and cinnamon. Wait a minute. Well, how does the, how does anybody know sitting in a movie theater watching that on screen with what something tastes like. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I knew exactly what you mean. This guy, this writer, doesn't understand the most fundamental aspect of screenwriting, which is you're stuck with sight and sound. It's just sight and sound. Um, and it's easier to write a novel because you're not stuck with... You can say what somebody remembers, what they uh, think, how they feel. You know, the, the greatest... Um, compliment that's ever been paid me is that final draft, the software, I'm sure you know of it, mm -hmm. uh, the screenwriting software has actually created, uh, I don't know if it's available yet, uh, we are creating, uh, they are creating for me in consultation with me, the Richard Walter template. You know, like if you want to write a, um, 
if, if you want to write a, um, uh, uh, a Simpsons script, for example, you can you can punch up Simpsons. You know, there's a pull down window in Final Draft, and you can go to Simpsons, and you click that, and it'll immediately give you the formatting for that that the uh, uh, you know the Simpsons likes that the Simpsons uses. Uh, and I don't mind telling you that a colleague of mine uh, has won several Emmys for uh, on The Simpsons, and a bunch of our students have written for The Simpsons. And oh, one of them, this makes me sad because he died uh, young in his 40s, a wonderful writer, a wonderful guy, very successful um, in um, uh, not just in uh, TV, but also in features. He wrote Thor, he wrote uh, Supergirl, a uh, very, very fine writer. Um, he uh, 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 he was a uh, the the, the uh, co-producer. What do they call him? Co-executive producer of The Simpsons and a writer for the for The Simpsons. So, Final Draft has a uh, Simpsons template. They now have a Richard Walter template. If you if you punch up me, you'll get um, format that conforms to my particular desires. For example, I don't when if you write X E X T. For exterior, mm-hmm. you know, it's like X or int. I was taught that you don't put, and I, I preach it, you should not put a period after that. And in final draft, uh, if you go to the Richard Walter template, it'll get rid of the period that comes after EXT. Now, somebody might say, gee, that seems like a pretty petty point. But actually, I think it's the most important, the most profound point in all of creative expression. And the point is simply this. There shouldn't be anything in the script that doesn't serve the script. That is to say, it doesn't move the story forward. And if you learn, if you get into the kind of mindset that leaves out even the period after exterior, then you'll leave out lines of dialogue that you don't need. You'll leave out whole characters you don't need. You'll, you'll leave out whole scenes that you don't need, um, if you follow what I'm what I'm saying. So in any way, the only reason I'm telling you about this is that in the um, Richard Walter template for Final Draft, they are now having, uh, we're tweaking it, and in the wide margin description, if a word like realizes, feels, remembers, thinks, uh, appears, it's going to get highlighted, uh, a little zigzaggy line underneath, or some attention will be called to it, to ask the writer, do you really want to say this? Is this something that the audience can see or hear? Because if it's an internal interior mental thing it has no place in a movie but in a novel i mean everything in it that's interior or mental in a movie has to come out of sight and sound you know the um uh, marilyn's eyes widen in what can only be the realization that harry left the gun in the nightstand at the motel you, you understand what i'm saying it's going to be told from a visual standpoint answering the question never mind the reader of this ink on the page i want to know how the viewer in the movie theater watching it on the screen is going to know this information. Um, and But in a novel, you can just spill it out. And you can also write in the past tense or in the future tense. I wrote a novel that's set in the past, in the present, in the future. And in the past, I tell it in the past. Uh, and in the future, I tell it in the future tense. And in the present, I tell it in the in the present tense. She goes to the door. She opens it. He stands there. You know what I'm saying? So um, you don't have to worry about that in a uh, novel. You can you can, you can do, do anything you want. Also, novels are longer, and it's easier to write longer than shorter. Not everybody gets that. There's a, um, it's like it's easier to ride a bike fast than slow. You know what I'm saying? 
Um, <laughs> it's, no, it's very true. You're absolutely right. The the uh, uh, there's a letter from Hemingway. There's a very famous letter from Ernest Hemingway. He was in Cuba. I think he was working on uh, the Old Man in the Sea. And he wrote a letter to his um, legendary uh, editor, Maxwell Perkins. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And it was nine pages long, on and on and on and on and on about this and that and the other thing and aspects of the script, of the manuscript, the typescript for Old Man of the Sea and this and that and the other thing. Finally, halfway down the, the middle of page nine, he says, well, that's about it for now, Max. He says, please forgive me for writing such a long letter. I didn't have the time to write a short one. <laughs> it takes longer to, 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 to be quick and to the point and to call and select and do the things that artists have to do. So I think there's really something to be said for uh, writers uh, tr- taking another tack uh, trying their script out as a novel, trying to get some traction there. And if they do, suddenly uh, it becomes viable as a movie project because it's no longer original. They've taken the, quote, curse, close quote, off of it um, by removing its originality and making it an adaptation. So, just, you know, just some thoughts. Just some thoughts. You, you know, it's funny uh, you mentioned that, Richard, because uh, I'm actually a, a Final Draft, not only affiliate, but I also am part of their uh, their program where we get, like, beta testing. I'm sorry, who, whose program I missed? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm actually a part of Final Draft's... Uh, oh, Final only, Draft, yes, yeah, yes. Not, not only their affiliate program, but also their beta testing. So, like, I get the new stuff before anybody else, you know, uh-huh. and, and get feedback. Um I haven't got a chance to actually check that template out, but when, but I'm going to keep my eye out um, because yeah, you know I've been working with Alejandro Seri, uh, mm-hmm. who's one one of their guys, a great guy, and I don't know if it's available or not yet. I I think it's it's an you know like um, you can sort of upload it if depending what you know what version you have and so on. Yeah, and because uh, uh, right now the latest thing that I've been beta testing is uh, they they have a a, a new app out for uh, the the iPhone. And, uh-huh. and that's what I've been beta testing a lot of, just, you know, giving them feedback and, you know, hey, I'd like to see this feature. I wouldn't like to see this feature, you know, stuff like uh-huh. that. And, uh-huh. uh, but I'm going to keep an eye out uh, for, for that template. I'm going to make sure, because if it's, it's available, uh, I will definitely upload that. Well, thank you. I'm honored that you would. It's, it's not radically uh, different, um, but I am a big believer in uh, less is more. Uh, no continued, uh, absolutely nothing. I've argued for years and years and years that if you um, can embrace this very, very fundamental uh, precept, which is that what we were just saying earlier, that it's just sight and sound. And if you can add to that just one thing, and that is that every sight and every sound must move the story forward some palpable way, some identifiable way. It doesn't matter what you write. It doesn't matter what this so-called genre is. It doesn't matter what happens. People will be drawn to it. You can even have nothing happen. And um, if somehow nothing happening uh, can move the story forward, uh, people will pay very, very rapt attention to nothing happening. And, and I'll give you an example of that. It, and a student of mine, um, God bless him, he blurbs my book very prominently, Alexander Payne, uh, in um, one of his best movies, I think, uh, 
uh, about Schmidt, uh, starring Jack Nicholson. I think it's Nicholson's best work. The movie opens with Jack just sitting alone. He's an insurance salesman. It's just clearly his last moment, literally his last minute on the job before he retires. And he just sits at the desk and absolutely nothing happens. But the the camera kind of wanders around the room and you can see the only motion in the room is the... um, uh, the sweep second hand of the wall clock and it's ticking off the seconds. It's like 40 seconds before five o'clock. And when it hits five, he gets up and he leaves, you know, that's the scene, but it tells you so much about that man uh, and how punctual he is and how afraid he is and how this he is and how that he is and so on that you get it. You get really, really drawn in into that. So that's why my template, if you can get into it, if you can find it, you'll see that it, it's, it really preaches minimalism, uh, that you should keep everything off the page that you can keep off the page. You know, uh, if you look at my books, you see the front page of a screenplay. I have a model of a front page of a screenplay, and then I have a model of what not to do. And the model of the what you should do is just the title of the script, the name of the writer. It shouldn't say written by or even merely by, much less an original screenplay written by, in case you think you're worried somebody might think it's a chicken salad sandwich or a bowling ball or something. <laughs> um, well, what if it just says by a written written by, what does that tell you? It tells you nothing. If it simply says uh, bottom dollar, um, you know, Sam Smith, people are going to figure this script is called bottom dollar and this guy, Sam Smith probably wrote it, you know? And then on the, uh, the only other thing you should have on that page is uh, a phone number and an email address, Um, you know, contact info. Now, if you have an agent, she's going to be sending out on her own, uh, you know, she's not going to want, um, potential buyers to contact the client. She's going to want them to contact her. And by the way, the author should not want to be contacted directly, be suspicious of anybody contacting you directly. If you have a representative, if they're legitimate, uh, if the producer is legitimate, legitimate, they should be willing to and eager to call the producer. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, so it's different if the thing is sold, but if it's a speculative script, um, it should just have the name of the uh, script, the title of the script, and the name of the writer. And as I say, a phone number, one phone number, only one phone number. I have a bunch of phone numbers. I have my UCLA number. I have my uh, home number. I have a cell number. Uh, I have a special number in my home office. They don't want all of that. They don't want my mother's number. They don't want uh, my lawyer's number. You know, uh, just one number and one email address so that you can be found if people, people are interested. And as I say, if it even simply says buy, somebody who puts that on the script, on the front page, doesn't get it. That right on the cover of the script is information that serves no purpose at all. What is the likelihood that somebody's going to miss that, but get character and story and dialogue and all of the sophisticated and heady uh, and provocative, um, precepts and principles that uh, apply to the art and the craft and the business of screenwriting, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, not encouraging. So uh, again, that's what you'll see is very, very minimal. Anything that, that can be lost, you should lose. And if you're in doubt about something, you sort of feel, well, maybe you need this, but maybe then you lose it. If you're in doubt, throw it out, just have stuff that absolutely must be there. And it's so easy to figure out what must be there. Um, You just ask yourself, what if it weren't there? 
Does it still make sense? If it makes sense uh, without it being there, then it wasn't needed. If the whole thing falls apart without, uh, you know, uh, uh, when it's not there, then it was needed. You follow what I'm saying? It's yeah. like there's a, there's a joke. A uh, guy goes into a library and he steps up to the uh, desk and he says to the librarian, I'll have a hot dog and a Coke and French fries, please. And the librarian says to him, sir, <laughs> this is a library. He says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll have a ham. I'll have a hot dog. French fries, and You know, so whispers it. <laughs> you get the joke? It's like you're not supposed to talk loud in a library. He thinks that uh, she's reprimanding him for talking too loudly rather than for ordering food at a library desk. You follow the joke? Yeah, absolutely. So the reason I tell you that joke is you can imagine if that were a screenplay, a portion of a screenplay, you would absolutely have to have the parenthetical direction whispers. Sir, this is a library. Harry, whispering. And then the line again. You with me? Uh, if if um, if you don't have it there, the, the person is gonna, isn't going to whisper, and the whole joke is lost. So you needed the parenthetical. But that's the exception. One of my great um, battles is against parentheticals. Um, it's a sure sign of amateurism when there are a lot of parentheticals. Wryly, drolly, angrily, smiling, um, you know, sadly. Um, Shakespeare got through 36 or 37 plays, not a single parenthetical, you know, Hamlet, melancholy, never. <laughs> so you want the least. Uh, and um, you can figure out what the least is by asking yourself, what if this weren't here? Um, does it still make sense that we didn't need it? So that answers the question that every artist is confronted with, which is what needs to be in the work and what doesn't. And um, why doesn't everybody do that? And the answer is it takes time to do that. And that's what people won't give it. They just won't give it the time that it takes. You know, um, one of my uh, one of my mentors, uh, Bill Boyle, uh, he actually wrote a book called The Visual Mindscape of the Screenplay. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Mm-hmm. And, and he goes into that in depth that you have to take out anything that is not, you know, it's always about uh, what's on the screen all the time. Yes. And it always, and he's and that way, uh, uh, because he says he always would see people hanging in screenplays and they would say things that, like, you know, what someone is thinking in a screenplay. And he's like, how, how, exactly. how can we show that stuff? Exactly. Exactly. You know, Evelyn remembers that the, uh, uh, she left the car idling. Well, what does that look like on the screen? Somebody <laughs> remembering something, you know, and, and how are you going to know? Uh, let's say the actor looks up remembering and acting for dummies, if there is such a thing and is able to put on the remembering face if there is such a thing, <laughs> then how do we know what they're remembering? You know, again, it's so simple. It's, it, it, it's really very simple, very simple to know what to do to succeed. Why doesn't everybody succeed? Because it's hard to do it. It's easy to know what you do. It's like, I know exactly what to do to hit a home run. I'm sitting here about two miles from Dodger Stadium. And I know exactly 
what you have to do. You have to get the bat around in the right place at the right time. The difference between me and, uh, you know, Babe Ruth is that he could do it. He didn't merely know how to do it, but actually could do it. I know how to do it, but I can't do it. I don't have the equipment to do it. <laughs> so uh, uh, it, it's really, um, uh, you know, that, that's really all there is to it. And again, the reason people don't um, do it is they, they're in too much of a hurry. I uh, had a writer just tell me it's already, this is already her third draft. Well, come on, David Kep. I bet you know the name, K-O-E-P-P, a former student of mine, a writer-director. He wrote, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mission Impossible, uh, uh, Jurassic Park 1 and 2. He, right now he's uh, he's writing uh, the, the second chapter of the uh for Ron Howard of the Da Vinci Code. I mean, he's a gigantic successful writer. Also a very, very sweet man. He says the secret of his success is 17 drafts. He knows he can, he can get through 17 drafts. He says it takes 17 drafts. So he has somebody complaining to me about their third draft, you know. And, I, and they don't like hearing me telling them, you're just getting started. You know, you gotta, if you could get one more draft out of this, then you'll only need about 13 more after that, you know. And that stops a lot of people. They just don't have the, um, uh, what some people call the Zitzfleisch, uh, you know, the ability to sit there, um, the flesh that will tolerate just sitting there, reworking it, reworking it, reworking it. You know, uh, in my own experience, you know, uh, Richard, I, I wrote a, um, it was a comedy horror movie and it was at a, at a summer camp and, uh, what summer camp. Uh, it, it's a made-up summer camp that I had. Uh-huh. And um, the the I'm about uh, seven or eight drafts in now. And um, some people feel that these drafts – some people have said who've read it, they said, listen, these drafts are better. Some are saying, ah, you're starting to get maybe a little too far away from the original concept. And, you know, I, and now, you know, I, I sort of – judge for myself, I sort of have to say, you know, which, who's right in this situation? Well, you know, and I sort of go back and, and – um, there was at one point, I'm going to be honest, Richard, I was so burned out from re- rewriting this thing. I was like, I, I was fearing opening up Final Draft and looking at this thing again. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, every writer has that experience. It's actually a good sign, but do go on. <laughs> and I, at, at that point, I, I actually, uh, you know, I printed it out. And one of my favorite things to do is actually just print it out and I make marks with just a pen, you know, sort of I cut myself off from all technology and yes. just, just me and a, you know, a 90 or a hundred page. That's an excellent, excellent uh, thing to do. I also think it, uh, you, it really makes a lot of sense to write something else, put it aside, work on something else, and then you'll be able to come back to, uh, to it with fresh eyes. <laughs> You know, over the last number of years, I've I've become a, a fanatic uh, crossword puzzle guy. I do the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle every Sunday. And um, one thing that I learned doing crossword puzzles is you you know you go through, you get, you get what you can get, and then there's stuff you just can't get. And finally, you're just reading all the clues, and you you fill in maybe a little less than half the thing, and you just start, you can't get another freaking thing. You just can't. And you feel defeated and and stupid and so on. You put it aside, just go up and do something else. Come back to it later. You sit down and suddenly wham, 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 wham. This thing, that thing, this thing. It all leaps, you know, into relief. 
that you can uh, write in and almost run your hand over and, and feel it like a freeze on a temple, you know, um, a carved marble freeze. Um, and it teaches me that uh, just like the body gets tired, the muscles get tired, the mind gets tired. And when you rest the muscles and they recover, so also can you rest the mind and it recovers. And you look away from something, uh, you look at something too careful, you really can't see it. You, you kind of look away and then you look back and there it suddenly is. I'm reminded of when I was an undergraduate student in Binghamton, New York, as a, you know, a history major in college. Um, Binghamton is in uh, Broome County, New York. And uh, I remember going through some original letters uh, that had to do with Broome County history, and they had been written in like the uh, early 1800s. And there was a, um, you know, they were concluded in some state archives, some county archive or something like that. They were contained there. They were housed there. And they're written in this uh, ancient kind of um, uh, script, you know, handwriting. And sometimes I just can't read what it says. I remember my teacher telling me, uh, you're looking at it too hard, look away from it, then kind of sneak up on it. And, and somehow, suddenly in context, it all leaps out, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you take time away from you, you really stuck with your script. You're talking about your eighth draft. And when I say you, I mean any writer. Um, what about put it aside for a while and work on something else and then come back to it. And as far as you're getting too far away from your original concept, maybe there's something better than your original concept. Maybe you've taken it to a place that's even better for it to be. One more thing on this, on this subject, and it goes back to David Kep in the 17th draft. He says very often the uh, latest drafts mimic the earliest drafts. You sort of get back to the beginning of it and you get back to that context. Uh, that original uh, uh, concept that you had. Um, and that might seem like a ferocious waste of time, but it wasn't. You needed to go through all of that to see that this is the way it really ought to be. Uh, I was talking to a writer only the other week, uh, a few weeks ago, who was, uh, I, I ran into, I hadn't seen him in a long time, a guy I know pretty well, but I hadn't seen him in a long time. And he, and he says, well, much better now. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I was stuck for 10 months this year. I was struggling with this script. And I just fumped and hesitated and, and uh, stumbled and, and just couldn't make any progress with it at all. And it haunted me and it tortured me. And then finally, two weeks ago, I just settled in and said, screw this, I'm going to do this. And I, I went right through it and I got it and, you know, and, and nailed it and it's just great. Um, so, you know, and, and, and that's why I'm upset. I said, I don't understand why. Why is that a... Why is that upsetting? It sounds like, like a nice thing. He said, well, I struggled with this thing for nine or ten months. Uh, why don't I just do this ten months ago, you know, and I wouldn't have had all of the, the darkness and all of the pain that I had. And I said to him, uh, you couldn't have done this ten months ago. You needed to struggle and suffer and have all of this pain and live all of this life of the last nine or ten months to become the person that you are that could, you know, who's also the person that could finish this script, that could, you know, write this script. So um, that's the way it goes. You know, nothing new about writers uh, beating up on themselves. So I mean, I, what I ended up doing was I ended up uh, actually I did work on something else. Uh, I just I, at that point I said, you know what, I, I think I should just take a break from this. And yes. I, and uh, I'm thinking about coming back to it very soon. And because uh, it's been about probably a month or maybe a month and mm -hmm. a half. And mm -hmm. I think now it's probably better. I you know, can come around full circle now and uh, and just, again, start draft nine and see where that takes me.
Look, my first um, novel uh, was, uh, I told you about it earlier, I had written it as a uh, screenplay and couldn't get any action on it, I wrote it as a novel and then sold it as a screenplay. Um, years later, I, um, and by the way, it got me a lot of work, you know, uh, it was an adolescent coming of age story. Um, and, uh, given that on my drafts of American graffiti, which is, uh, you know, an adolescent loss of innocence, rite of passage. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Coming of age story. I was able to get a lot of work. I was kind of the go-to guy for, uh, adolescent coming of age stories, loss of innocence stories in Hollywood. Um, that novel, after I saw, uh, and it's a kind of a, uh, um, I grew up in New York City, and I sang doo-wop in the streets with friends of mine and so on. So it's about this doo-wop group that never really uh, succeeds, but they learn that if you sing in harmony, you'll live in harmony, you know. Um, and after I saw I started thinking about it as a uh, stage play, um, you know, as a musical, but I uh, I needed a songwriter, and then I, after I saw Jersey Boys, I've seen it several times on Broadway. I realized no, it could be a jukebox musical, and so I uh, I rewrote it as I adapted it for the musical theater using existing tunes, you know, just like the Carol King show and the Motown uh, musical, um, uh, you know, uh, and and Jersey Boys, you know, uh, are just examples. There are a lot of them now. That are not using original music, but uh, that's why they're called jukebox musicals because they use existing tunes. So I suddenly realized I could do it as a jukebox musical. So I, re- I rewrote it as a jukebox musical. Two years ago, it was um, uh, workshop at UCLA. Uh, there was a humble read through, uh, sing through, um, directed by one of the professors in the uh, musical theater program in our sister department, theater. Um, and it was the most uh, satisfying, uh, fulfilling, creative experience I've ever had in my career. This humble little read through. Now there's a uh, there's somebody <clears throat> eagerly showing the uh, the play around, trying to get a a production for it. Um, probably nothing will come of it, but but it might. You know, the crazier things have happened. But the point is, and the reason I bother you with it, telling you about it, is uh, look how long I've been in business with this thing. I, it goes back over forty years. You know, between the time that I first started uh, outlining what became the screenplay, uh, which ultimately became the novel and so on. My most recent novel, uh, which which I bragged to you, made the Times list. I also wrote originally as a screenplay. I uh, and I'm talking about um, uh, over 30 years ago, probably 31 or 32 years ago. I wrote it as a screenplay. Um, it was optioned and dropped and optioned and dropped. I made some money on it. It was optioned by, uh, you know, an Oscar winning, uh, multi Oscar winning, um, uh, independent company, very prestigious company. So I made some money on it, but I never got anywhere with it. It never got produced. Um, so, uh, eventually a student of mine at UCLA, uh, I was talking about the project. He said he'd love to read it. So I, he convinced me to let him read it. And he came to me and he said, you should use this as an outline for a novel, a comic novel. So I did. And, um, when that was done, I showed it around to the publishing business and I couldn't get any interest in it at all. 
Um, all I had with it was frustration and heartache and, and uh, as I say, disappointment. Then, uh, I mean, I'd made some money on it, you know, in the early days when it was a film script and I got those options, but generally it had been a pretty big disappointment. Then I met an editor in, I'm sorry, I met a very powerful agent. I have been so privileged in my life uh, to, uh, do the things that I've done. One of them is, um, for five summers, I would take the whole family to Maui for the writer's conference late in the summer. And if it had been in a motel six, that'd be okay. It's Maui, but it wasn't in the motel six. It was in the grand Wailea lay a five diamond luxury spa, uh, hotel resort, you know, just an incredible place. And there I, I, um, would meet all of these, um, heavyweights from both literature and film. We mentioned Stephen King earlier. Stephen was there. You know, I mean, they had world class um, uh, writers, both in uh, the movie business and in the literature business. And I remember I met an agent there, and she said to me, uh, I, I, a very powerful New York agent, and she agreed to. I pitched the project to her, and she agreed to read it on the mainland when she got back to the mainland. So I sent it to her in New York. And she called me up and she said, uh, and this is like 20, this is um, uh, 20 years after I had first written it and, and, and about 15 years ago, <laughs> if you're with me, uh, she said, um, I have to tell you, I read your, your uh, typescript and I think it's great and I want to represent it and I'll represent it exactly as it is if you want me to. I'll send it out exactly as you've written it. However... I have an editor here in the office that I work with, and uh, I think you should get notes from Miriam. Um, and if you don't like the notes, uh, you know, then uh, the hell with it. I'll, you know, throw them away. I'll, I'll throw the book as is. But I have to tell you, Richard, she said to me, uh, that when my office worked with Miriam, I sell this stuff right away. Now, I charge thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for notes, and they're not charging me a nickel for this, you understand. Now, I wanted to say to them, please, I'm not interested in rewrite. I've had nothing but grief from this project. Um, and I'm depressed and lost at the mo this moment in my life, and I hardly feel like going into some old you know, thing that's been nothing but disappointment all the way. And you've already said you'd show it as it is, so just show it as it is. I didn't say this, mind you, David. I just was, this was my thinking, you understand. Um, so I said to myself, don't tell her how much you hate the notes until you see the notes. In other words, wait for the notes and then tell them uh, that, yeah, you know, you really appreciate Miriam doing what she did, but no, you want to stick with what you had and the hell with it. So you don't have to do any more work, right? Um, and by the way, who the fuck is this Miriam? Some 23-year-old uh, who just got out of, you know, creative writing major from Swarthmore or Bryn Moore or one of them Moors, you know? Uh, don't they know who I am? And on and on and on, you know, that kind of inflated view of self that a writer can get and become his own worst enemy. Of course, I said none of that. Well, that was my thinking. So finally, the notes come from Miriam. By the way, it's Miriam Goderich. She's now a partner in the agency. It's, it's Distal Goderich now. Um, and I read Miriam's notes, and you know what, David, the notes, my heart sinks like a stone when I read these notes because they're such good notes. And I know I'm looking at my worst enemy and when I brush my teeth, when I shave, if you follow me. If I don't get my butt in the chair, my hands on the keys, and find the old files and get, get back into it, right? 
So I certainly didn't want to do that, but I did. And by the way, the moment I started, I'd written two, three sentences. I suddenly was born again. The fog lifted. The depression was gone. I was healed by the the wonderful nurturing... juices that flow through the system when you, when you, you know, uh, get involved in creative expression. And it took me a couple of months, uh, you know, to get the, the, the uh, script attended to in the way that uh, had been recommended. And then I got it back to the agency and bingo, they sold it right away. As I've told you, it made the times list, um, bestseller, you know, it's a times bestseller. Um, and uh, there was a lot of movie action around it, but nothing ever ever came of it as a movie. Now, if all that ever comes of it is it was a best-selling novel, that's not a bad thing, is it? But guess what? I'm going to London. I'm going to be at the London uh, Screenwriters uh, Festival in uh, October. And uh, a British producer called me. He said that he's uh, he's actually American producer, but he's British-based. He's London-based. And he said he has... Um, uh, this was a few years ago. This was three or four years ago. He'd come upon the novel and he thought it'd make a great movie and he wanted to uh, option the rights to it. Well, nothing ever came of that. More frustration and disappointment. Now suddenly he calls me. Just coincidentally, I'm going to be in London in the fall. And he says, guess what? He made a movie with a... Um, uh, he produced a movie that was directed by a new director. A short film. And on the strength of that short film, that director has been signed by a very, very prominent agency. And they have asked him uh, to bring projects to them that he would like to do. So he asked this producer and the producer called me and said, is is your novel still available? And it is. So right now, as we're talking, it's being shown not by me, but by a... um, an artist who's been signed by a major agency who asked him to show them stuff that he wants to do. Do you understand how much better that is for, for the material to be exposed to them that way than for me, the author, to call their attention to it? You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And on top of that, it's it's conceivable that they uh, will will be showing it to producers and production companies. I would rather be represented, if anything comes of it, by a lawyer rather than an agent. But if they want to go out with this thing and they approach me and they want to want me to let them represent them on it, I'll do that in a, in a heartbeat. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's better for me to have them motivated, you know, extra motivated. You follow my reasoning there. Uh, if they can represent me as well as the director, they're going to be that much more motivated uh, to sell the thing. So the likely there's nothing that will come of it. But here we are. We're talking in 2015, midway through the year, just about. And I'm still in business on this thing that I started writing in like 1980. Um so you see what a mistake it is for writers to do what they often do, which is they write a script that doesn't sell. That's the end of it. They think it was a failure. Mistake, 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 mistake. Yeah, and you know that, that's you know very true. I have a friend of mine also who uh, he, he's you know in his. 40s or 50s, but he wrote a screenplay, you know, in his 20s, and then suddenly, you know, that's becoming a light again. And, you know, uh, 
you know, again, like you were saying, you know, it, it, it's it's amazing how these things get new life. You know, years well, later. David Webb Peoples, you know, he won the Oscar for Unforgiven. It was mm-hmm. also best uh, best movie that year. Clint hung on to that script for twenty years. And Clint made another movie that was very successful. Didn't win the Oscar, but it was very successful about the the Secret Service guy takes the bullet for the president in the line of fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another script that was hanging around for 15, 16 years. The writer of that script was packing his the trunk of his car and getting ready to you know, go back in defeat with his tail between his uh, legs uh, back to New Hampshire when the phone rings at Small Paso, Clint's company. And, uh, you know, they want to know that they want him to know that they wanted to come in for some meetings about brushing up the script. They're, they now uh, have a schedule. They're going to go ahead and, you know, produce it for uh, $88 million, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. You just never know. People don't understand that when a script doesn't sell, it's not the end. It's just the beginning. That script might sell eventually, but even if it doesn't, uh, it's a sample of your craft. It could lead to um, representation. It could lead to a, uh, a development deal on another notion that you have in mind. It could lead to a rewrite assignment. Uh, I've seen all of these things happen. Um, they've happened to me. They've happened to writers that I uh, I know. Um, and uh, that is why it is a terrible self-defeating mistake to imagine that a uh, script that doesn't sell, that's the end of it. It's a failure. The very first script I ever wrote, I wrote in a class at USC. It was in the legendary, uh, uh, the, the instructor was the legendary Erwin R. Blacker, who was George's uh, teacher and John Milius's teacher and on and on. Um, the uh, That script never sold, uh, but I got top flight representation as a result of it. I got a... a, a um, uh, onto staff at Universal. Here I was a young kid. I wasn't, you know, I was in my 20s and I had an office at Universal with my name on the door, a parking place next to Paul Newman's parking place, I noticed. Um, a, uh, a ridiculously generous salary, at least it seemed that way at the time, actually adjusted for inflation, was pretty generous. Um, and it all came about from a script that hasn't sold, you know, to this day. So to consider that script to be a failure, is is lunacy? Yeah, and very the, very the true. business. The business is hard enough on writers. Writers don't need to be hard on themselves. Is the point that I'm making? And yeah, and that that's an excellent point. And that that sort of leads me into you know my, one of my uh, last questions. I know we've been talking about two hours. I know I've been taking up a lot. I'm of your delighted time. to chat with you. I want to make sure we do cover. We, I do, do talk a little bit about the uh, the summer session yeah, that's, class yeah. that I offer. So go ahead and ask me a question, and then I'll talk a little bit about that. That's actually the question I was going to ask you. Was you know uh, I know you have a you know an upcoming uh, summer session, and this is the only time of the year where non UCLA students can sign up. And Correct. I, and I wondered if you could just you know talk a little bit about the class, and and you know for anyone listening who's you know interested in signing up. Well, the first thing I'll say is just the, the, the housekeeping. If you want to find out official information about it, uh, you can do that by simply going to my website, richardwalter.com. There is no S at the end of my name, richardwalter.com. And uh, I think the very first thing on the uh, site is a link that will take you to the UCLA site that describes enrollment procedures and uh, tells you a little about the class. It also tells you something wrong about the class, which is that um, – uh, there are certain prerequisites for the summer session. All prerequisites are waived. Uh, 
And the class is open to and the class is especially designed for the summer session. I've taught it for thirty over thirty years now. Uh, it meets starting on uh, June twenty second, Monday, June twenty second, um, Monday afternoon for the and for the next five. That is a total of six Monday afternoon sessions. It's not a lecture course; it's a hands-on writing course where you get uh, the, the main activity of the class is the in-class examination of in-progress scripts being written by students in the class. So you get not only the support of uh, the teacher and the teaching assistants, um, but also uh, your fellow writers around the table. And one thing that has touched me very deeply all these years is how generous everyone is, all the writers are with everybody else, how much support that, um, that the writers give each other. I feel like I've learned much more than I've ever taught, um, you know, being at UCLA and my students are my teachers. Um, so you get all of that alive. It's not online. It's alive in a classroom. And uh, it is a rare course in that uh, um, it's very difficult to get into it. Even if you're a registered, matriculated UCLA student, it's very hard to get into an advanced um, film class with senior faculty like me. So this is an opportunity to do that, not only for UCLA students, but even for students who are not uh, enrolled at UCLA. And by the way, everybody gets eight credits for it. Those credits are, are useful at anybody, uh, you know, for anybody at any uh, University of California campus, but also they're transferable, depending upon the attitude of the institution, they're transferable to uh, other institutions. Um, though I would say most people taking the class really aren't interested in the credits. They're interested in getting the attention and consideration that, uh, you know, our regular students get when they write their, uh, their screenplays. So it's a really upbeat, uh, um, six weeks together, and um, uh, it, it, it's uh, limited enrollment. It's almost sold out, um, but there is still some room for for some people. I want you to know that I don't get paid per student. I don't get paid on a per student fee. I rather I get a flat fee. And the only reason I tell you that is that I'm not trying to self-aggrandize here. I'm not against self-promotion, and I'm not against uh, making money. But I'm not, uh, I don't get any extra money if, uh, you know, uh, extra students enroll or anything like. I just want uh, anything like that. I, I just want your uh, uh, readers and listeners, um, the people that you reach, I want them to know that this is a rare opportunity. Uh, it, it's not that widely known. Uh, it is available to them. Uh, and we, we crank up uh, two weeks from Monday. It's not too late to register. People commute, by the way. Uh, it's obviously most convenient for people in the Southern California region, but there are people who commute from all across the country. I had somebody uh, last summer commuting from uh, Illinois. The previous summer, I had a couple. They were uh, a doctor and um, his wife coming uh, commuting every Monday. They would fly in to L.A. from El Paso and take the class and then fly back, uh, you know, either late that night or the following morning. Um, that's how motivated people are to take the uh, the class. And I would commend it to, you know, uh, all of the people that you reach. And, uh, you know, I've actually uh, I've known people who've actually taken the course. Uh, uh, and, you know, I'll probably I'll mention their names when we get off, Richard, because uh, you probably know you probably remember a few of them. And um they spoke very, very highly of the course. Oh, thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, and again, I mean, to work with someone who's actually been in the fields, been in the trenches, it's just, you know, it's unbelievable. Um, uh -huh. And, you know, 
uh, I again, I will link to your your upcoming class in the show notes. Uh, I, you know, and everyone, I also recommend you check out Richard's uh, book, Essentials of Screenwriting. Uh, I have a copy behind me. I swear, Richard, you can't see it, but it's on the the massive bookshelf behind me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, Richard, you know, I've I've taken up so much of your time today. I want to say thank you very much. It's and, my pleasure. I enjoyed chatting with you. I really tr- truly did, David. Oh, and I would love to have you back on if you ever wanted to. Um, Absolutely. Uh, you you know how to reach Kathy. She kind of handles my calendar, uh, and I'd love to come back. It'd be, it'd be a pleasure to do that. Excellent, because there's a ton of questions that we never got a chance to. I never got a chance to ask you because I mean, there's so many, and there's so many things we could talk about. Well, uh, one thing I've learned about. The questions and answers and that is really good answers just lead lead to more questions you know <laughs> so uh, and there's nothing wrong with that that is the nature of learning uh, absolutely uh you know everyone you could check uh, richard at richardwalter.com and uh yes rich exactly right and uh, richard i want to say one more time thank you again for coming on and i look thanks for having me david thank you oh it's my pleasure i, I so look forward to chatting with you again we will do it for sure Amazing. Uh, again, everyone, thanks again for listening. And uh, Richard, I wish you have a great day and, uh, you know, best of luck with all your projects. Back to you and, and thank you so kindly. Thank you. Take care now. You Bye-bye. Too. Bye-bye. I want to thank Dave so much for doing such a great job on this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 296. And if you haven't already, please, please, please head over to screenwritingpodcast.com subscribe and leave a good review for the show or subscribe and leave a review for the show wherever you are listening to this podcast. It truly, truly helps us out a lot in getting this information out to more and more screenwriters, creatives, and filmmakers. Thank you again so much for listening. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 